Well, good morning, Soul family. It's good to be here with you today. Uh, my name's Jordan, and I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Soul Sanctuary, and it's really just a pleasure uh, to be able to share today as we continue our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, one thing I'm going to make mention just at the beginning here is that at the, following the life lesson, we're going to be taking communion together. And so if you can get some juice ready or uh, some bread, something that you could partake together as a family in the comfort of your home, that would be excellent. Otherwise, I hope you have something to eat. I hope you have a hot cup of coffee in your hands. And uh, let's dive into this today. Uh, so far, as we've looked through the book of 1 Corinthians, we've seen a lot of themes. And among the themes we've seen, we've seen this theme of the wisdom of the world. Now, the church in Corinth were very uh, into knowledge. They were very an intellectual group of people to the point where it caused arrogance and it caused them to become prideful in that sort of thing. And this was contrasted with the foolishness of God, showing that, that even God's foolishness is stronger than the wisdom of the world. Um, another theme that we looked at was following the crucified Christ. The message of the cross, though foolish to some, is the power of God for those of us who believe. And the scripture went on to tell us that we have the mind of Christ. And finally... The Apostle Paul is spending some time talking about divisions that are present in the church. And I think it's good for us to pause here because I think that if we're just really honest with ourselves, we know how easy it can be to get, you know, angry or to become offended at something. And often this can lead to, 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 to bitterness to the point where we're, where we're hurting the team. And out of that, divisions can flow sometimes. And Jesus talked about division. It was, in fact, it was among the, the last things he ever prayed about. In John chapter 17, in verse 20, Jesus prayed, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also believe in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I in them, you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. One of the final recorded prayers of Jesus wasn't about uh, the challenges he was going to face or about his needs in that moment, but Jesus prayed for his church that they would live in unity. As I've been pondering this a lot in the past year, I am very grateful for the unity that we experience here at Seoul. And I truly mean that, and that's been a blessing to us. And let's continue to protect us, protect that as, as a church family. But it also got me thinking, and it got me pondering in my heart, how often do I pray in my personal prayer time about the unity of the church? How often do you pray this? Do we ever pray this? Do you ever, do you ever pray for that? It seemed to be of most importance to Jesus. You see, unity was very much at the heart of Jesus' final prayers because he knew that the church needed to love one another and needed to be there for one another. But also because a church that is living in unity paints a picture to the world around it. And so if that's the case, then unfortunately the opposite is true as well, that a church which is divided paints another picture a less desirable one, and one that's probably a little embarrassing if we're honest with ourselves. And so what are the things that divided the church in Corinth? Um, among them, they were divided over teachers. One of them wanted to follow this guy. Another one followed this person. Um, they had jealousy. They had quarreling. They were divided over social status and class, um, philosophy and opinion. Remember, they were really into knowledge, so they were divided over that kind of thing. Uh, favoritism was rampant in that church, and we're going to look at that as we get into communion today. And so maybe when we ponder what divided the church in Corinth, it's a good time to ask the question and ponder what can divide the church today here in Canada? What, what are things that cause divisions among us? You know, we likely have a lot of similar things that we have to watch out for. I think we have to watch out for jealousy. We have to wa watch out for quarreling, uh, clinging to our personal preferences, sometimes even over scriptural truths, you know, when we bring our preferences to the table. I remember, I'll give you a quick example. I remember when I was in Bible college, uh, back then there was this big debate about worship style going on. Thankfully, thankfully I think we've made it past that. But we called them, you know, the worship wars, where you had some people who thought we should only sing hymns only. You had another group of people who thought, no, choruses only. And, uh, you know, 
at the end of the day, what an adventure, I think, in missing the point, and I'm glad that we've um, come around on that, I like to think so, a lot today. But what are some other things that can divide us, you know? How about politics? Is that something that can divide us today? You know, it's interesting how politics can become such a hot-button thing for even those in the church, when at the end of the day, when you really think about it, the politician that you support and the political party that you support, they will win or lose, lose based on how people decide to vote on one day in October. The church, however, will win or lose based on how we love and treat one another before after and in between that time. And so it's critical, I think, that we keep in mind what kingdom we are a part of and who we represent. And so needless to say, division is no small matter in the church. And Pastor Jerry really brought it home last week when talking about the importance of unity and making sure we not destroy God's temple, which in chapter 3 meant the church. Um, if you're looking for the bodily reference to God's temple, you'll find it in chapter 6. Just hold on. We'll get there eventually. But there's so much out there that can divide us, but Jesus' hope and plan is for that which unites us as a church. And so in light of all this, let's step into chapter 4 today. And I'm going to do this a little different for myself today, how we kind of look through this and how I teach through this. But I'm going to teach through the chapter in order and see what we can glean from the text today. It'll feel a little bit more like a study in a way. And so let's start reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. And so here in chapter 4, we have the Apostle Paul beginning again to address some other divisive behavior in the church at Corinth. Uh, they seem to have their opinions about spiritual leaders and teachers uh, to the point where they're even looking down, in the, down on them. And so the Apostle Paul comes out and addresses it head on. And remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original text, um, in the original letter that was written. And so Paul's not necessarily switching thoughts here, but rather he's building on the previous thoughts that he's already written about. And he says, this is how you are to regard us. He uses the word as servants. And I love that he uses that word. You see, Paul is building upon what we just read about in chapter 3, that as those who teach and those who lead the church, it comes not from this position as like a CEO to employees or as a dictator or, you know, any forceful way that way, but as a servant, the same way that Jesus modeled his leadership. Paul also makes this statement that as servants, they are entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Some translations say you're entrusted with the secret things of God. And so what is it that he's referring to here? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7, we read, No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. And if you read the chapter, you'll see that he's talking about the message of the cross and resurrection, the gospel message that is no ordinary message, but one that has power, power to change you, power to change me. And so given this responsibility, this trust, there's this responsibility to be faithful with the message. And then he starts to talk about judgment, which he was feeling some judgment coming his way from people in the church at Corinth. He says that judgment is not to be based on the standard of man or on man's opinions, but there is this standard of the kingdom that we're concerned about. 
And so with all this talk about being entrusted with the message, entrusted with the gospel and judgment and motives, I think when I read through this, I was reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, that's almost like a paradigm uh, for judgment in the Gospels. We see in that chapter the parable of the ten virgins. We read about the parable of the talents, or bags of gold as some translations say. And uh, we read the story of the sheep and the goats. And the parable of the talents, I think, really lends itself to Paul's mindset here in this portion of Scripture. That we have all been given something. We've all been given a talent of sort. And, and, and in Matthew chapter 25, some people in that story were given five talents, some were given two, and some were given one talent. And the responsibility was to use and invest, and invest whatever they were given with the goal to produce more. And the only one who didn't end up doing this was the person who received the one talent. The one who received five invested and earned five more. The one who received two invested and earned two more. But the person who had the one talent simply buried it, hid it, and didn't put it to work. And the Apostle Paul at the outset here of chapter 4 is saying, as those entrusted with the gospel, the mysteries or the secret things of God, there is no place for burying the truth. But we must be about God's work in telling the world about him and making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, N.T. Wright in his commentary on Corinthians says this. He says, apostles and teachers don't own the treasure. They merely have to do what they're told to do with it. What is required is simply that they be faithful with what has been entrusted to them. And so Paul, in verse 6, is going to tell us that he applies these things to, him, to himself and to Apollos for the Corinthians' benefit. But this principle was very much true for those in the church as well. And so, it was so true that you have been entrusted with a treasure in the gospel. Do you realize what a treasure it is? And how are you managing? How are you stewarding? How are you using and putting to work this treasure that has been given to you? Are you investing in it? Are you putting it to work? Or perhaps, if you're honest with yourself, have you maybe buried it and hid it? And we are confronted with that here. What has God entrusted you with? And what are you going to do with what God has entrusted you with? Because each one of us will give an account. And Paul says this won't be an account that's going to be judged by, you know, human opinion or any other human court. But the Lord himself alone can judge us. And then Paul starts to go on about motives. And so what's this whole thing about motives here? You mean it's not just that I do the work or the deeds, but it also matters why I do them and what is happening um, in my heart and within? And the answer to those questions is, yes, this is a Christian teaching that actually finds its roots in the Old Testament. In Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, we read this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. You see, the scripture refers to our heart as the center of our being. It is the essence of who we are. It's literally where we see what a person believes. Jesus said, it's not what goes into a person that can make them unclean, but rather it is what comes out that can do that. It's what comes out that really matters, because what comes out comes from within. And this is why the motives behind what we do really matter. It's why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, took commandments which were once only based on external actions, things you would do outside of the body, and made them internal realities. Because what is going on inwardly matters much to God. You know, Jesus would say things like, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder. Great. Do that, right? Don't murder. But I tell you, don't even allow what could lead to such actions fester in your hearts. And he deepens the commandment. And he, 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 and he points it inward because motives matter. You know, let's use an illustration from life here. Why do you serve those who you love? 
It could be a spouse, it could be your kids, it could be your friends, um, it could be family, it could be parents, etc., etc. But why do we serve those whom we love? Now, it's true that sometimes we're just going to serve out of obligation, right? No doubt that's going to happen. Not everything in life is like, you know, giddy and happy, happy, joy, joy. There are sometimes you have to go and mow the lawn and you don't want to. There are sometimes you have to shovel snow, right, Pastor Jerry? been talking about snow this week, and you don't want to, right? But that can't always be the case. That can't always be how we approach serving those whom we love, because eventually we need to do it because of our heart's desire and because of love. For example, when I go to buy my wife a gift, now my issue with this is normally I'm the kind of guy who, oh my gosh, I got 20 hours to buy a gift here. You know, that's a whole other matter in and of itself. But when I go buy her a gift, there is also this joy in knowing that I have the ability to bless her. I have the ability to get Nick something that's going to bless her and make her happy. And there's joy in knowing that sometimes, right? And um, I don't have to drag my, my feet through it all. And in life, we don't need to drag our feet through when we serve others, feeling forced like I have to do this for Nicole, like I have to get this for Nicole. When in reality, the truth is, is that I get to do this for her. I get to buy her a gift. I get to serve her. I get to clean the yard. I get to, uh, you know, do things for my kids, right? And it doesn't come from this place where, oh, I have to and just dragging my feet. But you know what? I want to because that's what love does and that's what relationships do. And motives matter in our relationships with one another. And it's no different in our relationship with Jesus. Can you imagine being in a relationship with someone who just constantly dragged their feet and never found the joy in doing things for you or loving you? And it's no different in our relationship with Jesus. He will bring to light what is hidden, the Apostle Paul says. That stuff that we think we can hide or cover up will eventually be exposed for what it is. Therefore, don't go around judging other people, Paul tells us. You and I are not qualified for that, in that position in matters of judging someone's, you know, heart and motives. You know, God doesn't need our help there. You know, we don't need to be his GMs. He's got it covered, and he will reveal our hearts to us should we not look inwardly ourselves. And when that judgment comes, it will be just. It will bring to light everything now hidden, including the thoughts and intentions and motives of people's hearts. And that's a tough teaching. And that's, that's, that's definitely going to stretch us in how we live. Let's keep reading here in chapter 4. Let's look at verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. We, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. And so as we continue reading in this chapter, we're beginning to see that Paul's reality is defined not by the world around him, 
but by the world he reads about in the scriptures and in the revelation of Jesus that he has. Corinth, however, are getting sucked into the world's worldviews, the framework and morality and views about right or wrong that they're seeing in their city. And so Paul urges them, do not go beyond what is written. Do not go beyond what you see written in the scriptures or you may get sucked into Corinth's ways. And it's scary how much, when you think about it, we are like Corinth in our culture. Truthfully, have you ever wanted to avoid a certain text or a teaching because it didn't exactly, you know, roll with cultural expectations around you? You ever been tempted to do that before? And Paul is now addressing the judgment that they're passing on him because his life looks so different than theirs. They seem to think that their new status as Christians, coupled with this, you know, wisdom, quote-unquote, they think they got in the world's eyes, gives them the right to pass judgment on people, including the Apostle Paul himself. And they have, they have this misplaced confidence, not in the true gospel, but in their arrogance and in their positions in life. And so Paul is going to address the division that they're causing because of their arrogance, and Paul understands that the root cause of division is often pride. Think about that. You know, almost often, if you peel back the layers, it's about pride. On the surface, it might be about philosophy, it might be about personal opinion, it might be about, you know, some thought that you have, but pride always seems to linger within that and can cause division. Because Corinth is a culture, really, that celebrated pride rather than the scriptures, which celebrated humility. And Paul says to them, he says, you're puffed up with pride and it's causing divisions everywhere now. Look at verse 7. I like what he says to them in verse 7. This is a, a crucial, I think, verse for us. He says to them, for what makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? For what makes you different than anyone else? Essentially what he's asking them is, is why do you think you are so special? What do you have that you didn't receive? And I think this is such an important scripture and it seems kind of innocent on the surface, but the answer to these questions is really nothing. Nothing. And Paul is showing that pride is illogical. Pride here is like a toddler that's boasting um, that they have brown eyes, as if they had any control over that. Or because they have blonde hair, as if that was something that they decided. What do you have that you did not receive? And Paul asks this because he goes on to say that their puffed-up pride is leading to divisions all over the church. And in verse 8, Paul starts his sarcastic tone here. And he's getting sarcastic when he talks here. Um, that, that's the tone behind how he's writing. The long and short, the point that Paul is making here is that you, you Corinthians, you, you, you live in prosperity. Economically, things are good. Business is going well in your city. Um, spiritually, um, things seem to be going pretty good. People are wealthy in spiritual gifts. We're going to read about that again in, once we get to chapter 12. Uh, there's a comfort, there's an ease, there's a freedom, there's no per persecution in Corinth like many of the other early churches that you read about in the New Testament. And sometimes, out of that comfort, out of that prosperity, if I could say it like that, it breeds pride. And Paul says, listen, here is what you're like. You are acting like rich kings, he tells them. And so Paul starts to draw out, here is what your life is like as rich kings. And here is what our life is like as apostles. And he starts to compare the two situations. He says it's as if God has put us apostles at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. And he's using a sarcastic tone here. But as Gordon Fee points out in his commentary on the book of Corinthians, this was a serious statement. This was a serious thing he was talking about. A quick note here. You see, in Roman 
cities, there were arches at every city. And at those arches occurred something called triumph. And whenever the Romans returned from war, always victorious, the army would return to a city like Corinth under the arch, and a huge parade would go out and greet the army. And people would be yelling and celebrating, and there would be noise, there'd be ceremony, they'd be partying. The soldiers were so happy. They celebrated their gold. They celebrated their possessions that they, of course, gained during the fight. Um, and at the back of the procession were the slaves, the captives who were conquered from the nation that was fought against stripped naked and dragged through cities like Corinth. And when the parade was all over, these captives were put in the arena and in front of a bloodthirsty mob that was bored were fed to animals as sport. And it was brutal. It was an awful sight to behold. And Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, you are like rich kings at the front of the procession, myself Apollos, we are like the slaves at the back of the line, thrown to the wolves. And so he goes on to compare the way he lives to the way they live. And so the Corinthians, he says, and there's going to be a chart here that comes up, you have all you want, but we go hungry and thirsty. You have become rich. We are in rags. You have become kings. We are brutally treated and homeless and work hard you are so wise in christ but we have become fools in christ you're so strong corinthians but we're so weak and there's just a real sarcastic tone here you are so honored we are dishonored and and i added a couple we are slandered paul says we have become the scum of the earth and so when you look at the list between paul and the corinthians it begs a couple questions to be asked Number one, whose life looks more like Jesus? Whose life reflects the life of the crucified and suffering Messiah? The second question it causes us to ask becomes personal. When you think about your life, living in North America, a place where we we experience comfort, and um, even the lowest of us live in a very rich and wealthy nation comparative to the rest of the world, who are you closer to? between those two lists. And this was a tough thing for me to think about because I think if I'm honest with myself, and this might be the case for many of us, I'd like to say that my life looks like Paul, but in all honesty, Paul's life seems to look more like Jesus and I seem to look a bit more like the Corinthians. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) That means what he says in verse 14. He says, I am not writing this to shame you. Okay, that's a good place for us to pause and see Paul's motive here. I am not writing this to shame you. I am not writing to shame you because you experience comfort, because you are experiencing a life of, uh, with no suffering and with some prosperity. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you, he says in verse 14. I'm not writing this to make you feel guilty, to shame you because your life is good and comfortable, but to simply warn you to make sure you devote your life and all its blessing to what really matters and to what's really important. And some of us can relate to the Corinthians. It can be tough to live in a place of prosperity and spiritual gifts and keep your, you know, your walk with Jesus thriving because what often sometimes can creep into our lives as we live in such a place is pride. Pride can creep in so easily. And most of us would never think of ourselves as prideful, but pride takes on many faces. Pride takes on the face of insecurity. Pride takes on the face of anger. You know, when you think that someone's not treating you like you think you you should be treated, and you you have this whole I have my rights mentality. Pride often looks like not giving, not giving to your family, not giving to your work, not giving, you know, to um, your church. But when I think about pride in my life, I think the one word that comes to mind, the one thing that can really stand out is probably the word entitlement. Entitlement is this thinking that somebody or something owes me or owes you. And I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that we are bred into a culture of entitlement. When you think someone owes you, when you think the world owes you, when you think your friends owe you, and most dangerous of all is if we ever get into that point where we think God owes you. 
because the truth is, is that God owes us nothing. We have nothing. We are the creation. He is the creator. Everything that we have that is good is, is simply grace and mercy and, and, and really generosity of the God who exists for his glory and not simply for our happiness. And he blesses and he blesses and he blesses, not because he owes me a thing, but simply because he's God. And this is what God does. And when we think about this, this has to move us. This should move us. You see, uh, during this time of pandemic, I've been making a lot of calls and just catching up with people, seeing how they're doing, seeing what they're experiencing. And as I've been talking to people and seeing how how they're doing, I haven't heard a whole lot of talk about, you know, looking for, like planning this dream vacation or looking forward to this event or looking forward to that. But I've been hearing a lot of things like, you know, I'm beginning to see how grateful I am for the simple things in life. I think that's where this pandemic has brought many of us. You know, simple things that people miss, like even just being able to talk to a coworker, um, chat with them in person. Having coffee with a friend, which maybe would have just seemed like routine, but all of a sudden had a degree of meaning because we're isolated. You know, something as simple as even just walking through the mall and being able to browse for a few things. You know, what I've been hearing a lot is that this pandemic time is helping us to recover an attitude of gratitude. And it's helping us to recognize that we don't control everything. And Pastor Sharon mentioned that last week in the morning show, uh, what happens, which takes place pre-service. And she mentioned that it's helping us to see that we don't control everything. And we look to him. And it's messing with my attitudes of entitlement that I've had. It's messing with a lot of our attitudes of entitlement that we've had. You see, entitlement is angry with the God you invented in your own mind because he's not doing what you want. That's what entitlement leads to. Rather than being awestruck by God because of what he has, in fact, done for you that you do not deserve. You see, one of the best ways that we can fight pride is to realize and embrace the fact that all of life is a gift. Verse 7 again, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer, in spite of our culture's earn-your-way mentality that, that we're pushed to live in, the answer to that in light of God is nothing. And it pushes us to learn to culti cultivate a heart of gratitude and wake up day by day and thank God for all that he's given you. Learn to be thankful for what you have and not upset about what you do not have. And learn to realize that all of life is a gift from our creator. And it's a gift of grace. And so a great way to fight any pride that comes from prosperity or blessing, on the other hand, a great way that we could practically learn to fight this, the best way is the way of generosity. It's by living generously. Keep in mind that, you know, prosperity in and of itself isn't bad, but what's bad and what can corrupt us is when we don't use prosperity for what God has intended. And what is that? Well, that's to bless others through generosity. We are blessed to be a blessing. And so we need to ask the questions intentionally. What have you been blessed with? Where have you been blessed? What has God done in your life? What has God put in your hand that he's given to you? so that you can be his hands and feet, his servant, and pass the blessing on to others. Jesus said it like this. He said, freely you've received, now freely give. And as you do this, you'll find that your heart gets set free. It gets set free from one of the greatest prisons in the world, and that could be the prison of materialism, greed, even prosperity. And prosperity, which we may experience, isn't bad in itself, but if it takes hold of your heart, it can be. You know, I remember when I was in Bible college, I went through a little phase where I started watching televangelists. And uh, <laughs> yes, I, I, I can admit that. But I went through a phase where I started watching some of the TV preachers, um, often to discern things, but nonetheless, I was intrigued for a season. And I remember thinking to myself quite often about the disconnect about between what many talked about, you know, brand new cars, huge homes, private jets, and the, tis the disconnect between how many Christians live each day around the world right now in persecution. And in the harshest of conditions, clearly there is a disconnect in this thinking. 
I remember I had a friend back in college, and he used to always tell me this, probably sometimes just to bug me, but he used to always tell me when I found a good parking spot at the mall, he'd look over at me and say, God's favor. That's favor that you found that parking spot. Which, of course, you know, caused me to think about the, you know, the hundred other Christians who had to park ten blocks away from the mall, right? I wonder why they didn't find the same, you know, favor, quote-unquote, that I found. But the Apostle Paul's way of living just didn't add up to that. If anyone deserved the big house or, you know, the, the big car for all the efforts that they put in, it was him. But that's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us of a man who lived the way of the cross and even in that was able to appreciate his blessings and he was able to display generous living. And generosity is just that. You receive the blessing, but you pass it on. And in Paul's situation, he didn't exactly, you know, paint the most glamorous uh, picture of discipleship. Paul, in some ways, was a lousy PR guy, you know, for this, this gospel message in a way if the point is that we're trying to sell something. Because his life really seemed to mirror the crucified life of Jesus in suffering. And so when did the crucified Messiah to be followed simply become a cosmic vending machine Messiah that's only here for our happiness and to meet our demands? Where did we lose that? When did that become a thing? How did we get from hungry and thirsty and rags to all of a sudden, you know, God wills you to drive a Porsche, right? You know, I wasn't really good at math. I wasn't really good at formulas in school. I'm not going to lie to you, but I'm just not connecting the dots here. doesn't seem to add up. How did we get there? How did we forget that the way of Jesus, the way of following Jesus is not always easy? Now, here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that you have to be homeless or slandered or brutally treated to follow Jesus. And it doesn't mean that we should glorify suffering or try to make suffering happen because this isn't about bring on the pain here. So please hear me properly. But it does mean that life has its challenges and difficulties even for believers. And this is not a sign of weakness like the church had mistakenly been thinking in Corinth. The last section, let's read it quick. Verse 14. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? You see, this last part of chapter 4 is all about spiritual authority, and that word authority throws us off sometimes. Sometimes just mentioning it causes us, you know, to raise our eyebrows. It, it, It can cause all sorts of bad examples of authority to come to mind. We live in a society, I think, where it's easy to be skeptical and even untrusting of authority. We have seen so many bad examples. There's been so many scandals that have shown up, you know, in the media and even that maybe some of us have personally had to live through and experience. Too many leaders have fallen who are supposed to be looking out for our good. And so we live in a culture where we can approach authority with a degree of skepticism and not wanting to trust. And I mention this Because when we read a text about spiritual authority, those are the lenses that we come with. Those are some of the filters that we filter things through. And we can sometimes see authority as as oppressive and as untrusting, but we have to remember that what Paul is talking about here is not authority like we see in the world, but he's talking about Christ-like spiritual authority. And this is different from the ways of the world. Paul presents a new paradigm for the church here when he says that the church is a family. He says, you Corinthians are a young church and you are like my dear children. And then he says, you have had 10,000 guardians in Christ. Now, that that word guardians, 10,000 guardians, interestingly enough, can actually be translated as babysitters. You have had 10,000 babysitters. Who's ever been a babysitter before? Anyone? Who's tried it and quit? (laughs) 
Who's had an experience that just made you think, you know what, maybe I'll go get a job somewhere else? Anyone? You know, it's interesting to look after kids while their parents are away and try to keep them from getting into mischief can become a battle because your authority is not the same authority that the parent has. And some kids, like me probably, kind of figured this out and worked it to our advantage. You know, I almost wish, you know, Paul would have, I almost wish this word can translate to substitute teachers or something like that. You know, you have had 10,000 substitute teachers. Man, did substitute teachers ever endure a lot when I was in school. Did we ever give them a run for their money back when I was a preteen? You know, Mr. Wozolowski, if you're watching today, I apologize, okay? You know, I definitely wasn't the best kid because I knew the authority, the teacher who was normally there was gone, and it caused this level of misbehavior, of thinking I can get away with things, of thinking I wouldn't be held to account. But Paul is saying, you have had 10,000 guardians or guides or babysitters, but you have me, he says, as your spiritual father. Paul is saying, I led you to Christ and I care for you as my children. He is invested in them at the heart level. This is family. And in verse 16, he says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. And immediately some of us would think, well, that sounds arrogant. Imitate me. But Paul's entire goal here is imitate me in the sense of live the life of serving Jesus. You see, Paul had been known to live a life of serving Jesus unlike anyone did in his times. N.T. Wright in his commentary says this, His, Paul's only authority, but it's the most powerful sort, was that of someone who was living and preaching the gospel of Jesus and acting out of the commission which Jesus had given him. He didn't need to say much. He left that to puffed up people. His uniform, the life he was living, which he urged them to copy, said all that was necessary. And the Apostle Paul's goal is not to boss people around, and this shouldn't be the goal of anyone in spiritual authority. It's not the point, but the point is, is to help people live their lives in Christ Jesus, to help people live the way of Jesus, and in this case, to help the Corinthian church get back to living in the way of Jesus in ways that they may be fallen away from that path. You know, I don't know about you, but I remember growing up sometimes, and when I misbehaved at home, I didn't need to have a lot of conversation with my dad to, to see what he was thinking. Um, sometimes just looking at him was enough. I didn't need to debate him. I didn't need to ask him um, all sorts of questions about where his authority came from, but he was my dad, and that was enough. And I understood that when he came into the room and he was going to give me a stern talking to, I didn't need to start debating. I knew dad had shown up, and he was going to, you know, put me in my place and discipline me if he needed to. And in this situation with the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul says, Dad is coming home. And Paul doesn't need to fight for that or prove that, but his life, how he has lived for Jesus, says it all. And his authority is valid by who he is and how he lives. And in verse 18, he says, Some of you are arrogant. You become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. You know, remember when you were in high school and your parents went away from the weekend? Okay, maybe some of you were good kids, but I remember this, right? And you do things that you, you thought they wouldn't know about, or at least in my case back then, I was strongly hoping that they would never find out about. And it was this idea that mom and dad are gone. Yeah, let's party. Let's have fun. Well, this is the picture of the letter to the Corinthians. This is what we see here, that dad is coming home, and how he arrives depends on you. If you are rebellious, prideful, and puffed up, then he's coming with a rod to discipline you. But if you are not rebellious and you become humble and you care for each other and you grow in godliness and you bring your life back in line with the way of Jesus, then dad will come with his love and with a gentle spirit. The point for us today is this. You have people who love Jesus but aren't perfect like you and me. And they are getting sucked into Corinth culture kind of off track. And God raises up spiritual authorities leaders, specifically Paul in this case, to speak as a voice of authority into the Corinthians' life and help bring them back into line with the way of Jesus. You know, in 2 Corinthians 13.10, he says, this is why I write these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Paul says that his 
motivation, his purpose is to build them up, not to bring them down. And that's what he intends to do. And so in what ways have we allowed the principles of our world and times dictate to us what we believe rather than not going beyond what is written and trusting the scriptures? In what ways have we maybe fallen into that ourselves? The last verse we're going to look at is verse 20. It says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And we all know the difference between talk and power. There's a documentary on Netflix right now called The Last Dance. It's a story of Michael Jordan and the Bulls. And they're just really, you know, phenomenal runs that they had as teams. And their final run towards a championship. And the one thing I noticed throughout every episode that I watch was the more people trash-talked Michael Jordan, the more they got snippy with him, the more they mocked him, the more they tried to get in his head, the more he made it his goal to crush them, right? And every time it showed on the court by his actions, and he put up points, and he had amazing performances, and it seemed like people's talk really pushed him to, to not talk himself, but to really move to action. And the gospel is not simply a matter of talk and not simply a matter of knowledge. It's not enough to know all about Jesus at the risk of not knowing him personally. In 1 John 3.18, it says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And I believe the Apostle Paul is saying that the gospel isn't simply about what you believe. That's a big part. But the gospel is not simply about what you believe, but the gospel must affect how you live. For it has power to change you and make you more like Jesus. In what ways have we perhaps made the gospel a matter of talk and maybe not a matter of power and action? Here's a few thoughts for us to take home today from this chapter. Number one, we can't hide anything from God. God sees our motives, and he, he will reveal what is hidden in darkness into the light. And so we can't hide things from us. We might as well come before him and bring it to him and allow him to search our hearts and reveal things in which we maybe miss the mark. Second thought for us to take home is that puff, pride sorry, puffs up, but love builds up. And we need to embrace humility, knowing that all we have is a gift of his grace. And we've got to be humble about that in our lives. And finally, the third thing we, we could take home is don't be content with just knowledge and talk, but how can you practically live for Jesus this week? How can you make a difference for the kingdom? For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And so I leave this with us today to allow God to search our hearts and really just minister to each one of us. As I mentioned earlier when we began, this morning we were going to go to the communion table. And it actually works perfect today to actually look at the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 because Paul is addressing the church there and he's addressing their communion practices and how it's caused divisions. And uh, that's kind of what he's been talking about so far in the first four chapters of the book we're in. And so let me read to you just a couple verses that he says to them about their communion practices. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, he says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, together it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. And he comes to them and he says, you know, communion is supposed to be a time where the body comes together, where it shows our unity, where it shows um, the common, you know, the common heart that we have amongst one another. And the Corinthians had missed this, and they were showing favoritism, and they were looking down on different people of different social class, and there was all sorts of troubles going on. So Paul addresses that head on. It was causing division. And he says this before taking communion. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning, sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so this morning, we're going to have a, just a moment of worship before we eat the bread and drink the cup. But this morning, I want us just to have that moment of examination here. Allow God to search your heart. And in what ways do you maybe need to bring personal you know, items of sin before him and confess them? But even more than that, and in context with the, the passage here, how do we examine our relationships with one another? Are there people who you know you have offense towards or who, you, who maybe you've offended? Is there relationships that need to be prepared? Do we need to pray more for unity and begin to make steps towards making that happen? I leave that with you as we examine ourselves this morning before we take communion. Continuing to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. He took bread and he gave thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his body that was broken for us this morning, church. Let's eat the bread together. Scripture also says in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his blood that was shed so that our sin could be forgiven. Let's drink of the cup today. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, God, that you alone know our hearts. And you can reveal things to us, Lord God, that we need to bring to you today. And so for each one, Lord God, who has walked through the passage today. And uh, I pray that you would just speak to each one of our hearts, God, and help us, Lord God, to walk in the way of humility, of recognizing, God, that everything we have is of you and comes from you. Help us, God, this week as we go out into the world, not just to talk, but also to live the gospel. And we just give you thanks, Lord God. We thank you for your body, Lord God, that was broken. We thank you for the blood that was shed. We praise you today. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, here's a blessing for you. Please extend your hands. Here it is. By God's amazing grace, we are the body of Christ. And because of that, let us go into the world in peace and courage, holding to the good, honoring all of God's children, loving and serving the Lord, and rejoice, rejoicing in the power of the gospel and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.